This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. We've been talking about prayer the last few weeks. And my mind goes back to when I was at Liberty University, and I remember Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. sharing this story about prayer. Very encouraging. He talked about when he had just graduated from Bible college, fresh out of the factory. And he went back to his home church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they made this young Bible college graduate boy a Sunday school teacher. And he was supposed to teach the sixth grade boys because that's what you do with young men in their early 20s. When they graduate Bible school, you take them and put them in a boys Sunday school class. And so he got prepared, he planned, he studied, he read, he prayed, and then he went to the very first day of Sunday school that he was going to teach. Walked in the class, loaded for bear, and then he looked and there was one little boy. Just one. One little boy. And so he did what most of us do. He looked at his watch and said, well, I'll give everybody a few minutes. A few minutes went by and no one else came. No one else showed up. It was this Jerry and that little boy. Can you imagine being that little boy? I'm it. And so Jerry began to pray with that little boy. He said, look, buddy, and I don't remember the little boy's name, but he said, look, he said, we need to pray for this class. We need to pray that God would, would bring people into this class. We need to pray that you can have the courage to go out and invite your friends. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll pray to start with, because he didn't want to make, make it too heavy for the boy to deal with. He said, let's pray that God will double our class next week. So the little boy said, okay, that, that doesn't seem hard. There's only me, so that means that we'd have to just pray for one more guy. So he prayed with that little boy, and they prayed, and, and so forth. And all week long, Jerry would come in contact with that guy, and he, they'd pray together. And sure enough, the next Sunday, as he was beginning to teach... There's only one little boy. A minute or two after the class began, another little boy came in. And then another little boy came in. And finally, after a while, there were 15 boys in that Sunday school class. And Jerry was excited. He was thrilled. And all the young guys, they were having a good time. But that first little boy was sitting there with his head down throughout all the classroom. And after the Sunday school class was over, Jerry sat down with him and said, Hey, why are you so upset? It was just you last week, and I asked you to pray that God would double the class, and, and look what he did. And the little boy said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Falwell. He said, why? He said, I cheated. I prayed for more than double. <laughs> he said, that was a true story. You know, very often we pray for something, and we don't pray in faith. I'm guilty of it, and so are you. We don't pray that God would do something greater than what we expect. Because more often than not, our expectations are hindered by our own flesh. Well, certainly God's not going to do that. Certainly God can't do that. Well, you and I need to be like that little boy. Not only do we need to pray that God would move, but God would move greatly. That God would move mightily. In whatever we're praying in. Now, sometimes stories like that will happen. Sometimes they won't because God's will is God's will. But we don't pray like we should. 
And prayer is the most powerful resource that we have. Could you imagine if I got up here and made a message and did a sermon on how it's important for you to eat? Can you imagine if I got up here and said, now listen, after we leave here today, you need to get lunch. And you need to eat a lot. I'd hear amens. Put Duke's mayonnaise on it. Amen, brother. See? We'll amen Duke's mayonnaise and, and don't get me started. Of course I don't need to do that because you get hungry and you need to eat. Since you were five years old, no one has asked to tell you to eat. It's amazing for believers today, though, because prayer is such an important resource. It's so necessary to our lifestyles that we don't automatically become spiritually hungry and just run to God to fill that need in prayer. Instead, we have to have sermon series and we have to have preachers get up and talk to us about prayer. Oswald Chambers, the great theologian and author of My Utmost for His Highest Devotional, I highly recommend that if you need a devotional. He said this, he said, prayer is not an exercise. You know, I hear some Bible teachers refer to the disciplines of the faith and that prayer is somehow one of the disciplines of the faith. But Chambers said, prayer is not a discipline. It's not an exercise. It is the life of the saint. Ideally, realistically, it prayer is the life of the saint. Beware of anything that stops the offering up of prayer. You and I need to get away from this thinking that prayer is one of the things I have to do. And we need to come to the mindset where prayer is one of the things I need to do. Because without prayer, spiritually, I'm going to shrivel up. And if I'm shriveled up and dry spiritually, it will affect, as a believer, it will affect every other area of our lives. Jesus thought prayer was important. When Jesus walked the earth, we have instance after instance recorded in Scripture that he prayed. He prayed. Every Gospels records some form of Jesus praying and tells us how he prayed. And if we didn't get the exact words, we hear that he went off to a far place by himself to be with his father and to pray. Billy Graham says this about Jesus' prayers. He said, Jesus prayed briefly when he was in a crowd. He prayed a little longer when he was with his disciples. And he prayed all night when he was alone. That was how Jesus prayed. But today, many in the ministry tend to reverse that process. Because we think by the abundance of well-chosen, articulate words in public that somehow we get God's attention better than someone else does. Because we're self-conscious when we pray in public, aren't we? It's an interesting because we're not self-conscious necessarily when we're having a conversation with somebody. But for some reason, when we get in a crowd and we are asked and called upon to pray, and I understand that. Some people just aren't people. And I get that. And, and I try to respect that. I'm not going to call on anybody that I don't think wants to pray out loud in public. It's a little scary. But I've known men and some women who, when they're called upon to pray in public, boy, you might as well go get a sandwich because it's going to be a while. <laughs> Even preachers are guilty of that. 
Because we want to sound eloquent. We want to sound clever. And the reality is God just loves to hear our voice as we speak to him. But when we see Jesus praying, many of his prayers are very brief. Last week we talked about the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer as it's called, I think incorrectly. Because we're going to look at the real Lord's Prayer this morning. But even the Lord's Prayer as we call it in Matthew 6, it is very brief prayer. Because it's not generally the length of prayer as much as the need and the spirit in that prayer. Used to be not too long ago that people thought praying in King James was the way to go. That God, you know, we talk normal like we do now, but when we pray, Dear Lord, we thank of Thee, for Thou hast given us a bountiful day. I don't know how you can do that that quickly anyway. I tell people some of the most important, powerful prayers I've ever prayed have only been two words. So when I ran into my bedroom, slid on my knees and grabbed my bedpost and shouted, Lord, help! Because sometimes those are the most heartfelt prayers. So Jesus did prayer. And I want you to know Jesus prayed for you in the scriptures. Now we looked at Jesus as our high priest a couple of weeks ago. We know that as our high priest in heaven, he intercedes before God on our behalf. You know, that's a wonderful theological concept, and it's true. But in reality, he prayed for you and I in Scripture. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. And we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for this church. And when I say he prayer, prayed for the church, I'm not talking about the church institution. I'm not talking about the church building. You and I are the church. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend the next few weeks in September talking about the fact that you and I are the church. This is not the church. This building, this, this drywall, these beams, this concrete, that's not the church. You and I are the church, and Jesus prayed for his church. He, 2,000 years ago, he prayed for you, and he prayed for me. So we're going to go to the Gospel of John in chapter 17. And as we get ready to go there, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the music that has been done to help ready our hearts and minds to focus on you. So Lord, as we gather, help us to push aside all the junk that we've brought in with us and carried through the week. Help us set aside disgruntlements and grudges. And Father, help us to focus on you this morning. Help us to give you honor. Help us to give you glory. Help us to worship you. And again, Father, teach us to pray. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is getting ready to face crucifixion. He's getting ready to be betrayed and handed over to the religious authorities. And before he does that, the Bible tells us that he takes some time to pray. Now, there are small excerpts of these prayers throughout the Gospels. But in John, we see a more lengthy discourse on Jesus' prayers. We see a more lengthy treatment of his prayers. Either John was not far off or the Spirit of God revealed this to John as he led him to write this scripture. But we have insight into Jesus' heart. Now, we don't have time to cover the entire chapter of John chapter 17. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. Because in John 17, 
first 19 verses, Jesus is lifting up his disciples who were with him. Because he knew that he was getting ready to be crucified, that he would be killed, he would be buried, and, and he knew that he'd rise from the dead, but his disciples hadn't quite grasped that yet. He had told them over in John 14 and 13, yes, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be crucified, they're going to kill me and bury me. And they were grieved. That's why in John 14 he had to say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he went on to talk about the place he's preparing in heaven and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so they were grieving, they were hurting, and, and he spent the first 19 verses of John 17 praying for them as they get ready to face the world with this new and good message. And the reality is all the disciples except John died martyrs' deaths. They faced the turmoil that he told them would come. And they faced it with faith and strength. Christianity was not just a mild convenience for them. Christianity was their life. Jesus Christ was their reason for living and their reason for dying. Oh, they tried to martyr John, but God delivered them out of him because, because John needed to be available to write the book of Revelation. And then John died a natural death as an elderly man. But he recorded Jesus' prayer for the church. And you can even take my title that I've used and you can put in there Jesus' prayer for me. So let's jump into it. John chapter 17. We're going to find, first of all, he's going to pray for five things about the church quickly. And first, he prays for the church to be united. He's going to pray for the church to be united. And I want you to notice as we think about this, not uniform, but united. Notice in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is you and I. That is every believer since the time of Jesus until now. He prays for all of us. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. He says, I'm praying, and, and notice, the first thing somebody prays for is generally what's most on their mind, what's uppermost in their priorities. And Jesus' first prayer, his first priority for those of us who exist today as the church, so that we might be one, a unity, not a uniformed one, not everybody the same, because if you look around the auditorium this morning, not everybody's the same. We have different ages. We have men and women, boys and girls. We have brunette. We have blonde. We have people who work, people who are retired. I could go on and on. We're different. He doesn't mean for us to be uniform. He means to, to make us united as one church. As a matter of fact, he uses this word one five times in the first three verses. Five times, actually, for, yeah, first three verses. It is so important to him, and it's a sad, sad commentary on a church when a church fusses, fights, and splits. And I've been involved in that in the past. I've seen this church come to that, come to that precipice, but God and your faithfulness has kept that from happening. But he says, I, I, I'm praying that they may be one as you, the fa as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He goes on to say that they also may be one in us 
that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. So he's praying for this kind of unity. Now he's using himself and the Father as an example. Now the Bible teaches that God is a triune being. What does that mean? It means that he's one person, or one essence rather, excuse me, he's one essence, but three persons. One God, but three persons at the same time. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three and one, one and three. One essence, three persons. Equal in essence, but subservient in duty. In other words, God the Father sends God the Son, God the Son, and God the Father send the Spirit. But all three at the same time are God. There's only one God. Had a Muslim challenge one time. He said, listen, you don't know math. He said one plus one plus one equals three. He thought he had won the day. But the easy answer to that is, well, one times one times one times one equals one. We serve and honor one God, but three persons. Different persons, but one essence. Just like here in this church, we are to be in that kind of similar unified relationship. We are different persons. We're all unique in a way. We're all different, whether it's the physical differences, or we might have different interests, different talents, different likes and dislikes. Not all of us are similar. Why even in our families, our children, or our offspring, our siblings are different. Different as night and day. We're all unique. And that's the way the church is. There is no church. If you go into a church and everybody's wearing the same thing, cutting their hair the same shape and having the same, you need to get out. That's called a cult. Okay? But as a church, we are just like God, different in person, but we need to be one in the essence. And what is the essence of the church? The essence of the church is the man, Jesus Christ, and his mission. The Bible tells us that by the Spirit of God we are one. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives an entire dissertation that we may look at next month in detail, saying that even though we're different people, we are all made one and baptized into one Spirit through one faith in one God. And I can imagine that it breaks God's heart when churches fuss, fight, fume, and then finally fragment. It is sad to see churches split, and I, I have seen it. And it's nothing, we make jokes of it sometimes, we make sport of it sometimes, but I'll tell you this, and I'll go so far as to say that a church that splits ought to stand in shame before Almighty God. Because as long as the church is preaching the Word of God, focused on the truth of God, enamored with the Son of God, and seeking fervently to carry out the mission of God, then that church needs to stay together no matter what. So he's praying for the church to be united or unified. Yes, we're different persons, but we have one essence as the church. We have one spirit, one God, one mission. And nothing should cloud that. So he prayed for the church to be united. Not only that, but if you go back to... Uh, and let, well, let me just read this real quick from Tom Rainer. Tom Rainer has written a wonderful book. Uh, it's called I Am a Church Member. Matter of fact, I'm hoping we're going to be able to make copies available to you here in the next month. 
But he says this about church unity. He says, you have a responsibility as a church member. You, listen to this very carefully. You are to be a source of unity. You are never to be a divisive force. You are to love your fellow church members unconditionally. And while that doesn't mean you agree with everyone all the time, and certainly we don't, it does mean that you are willing to sacrifice your own preferences. Did you hear that? Let me read that again. You are willing to sacrifice your own preferences to keep unity in your church. Now, we never sacrifice truth. We should never sacrifice doctrine. We should never sacrifice adherence to the Word of God. But yes, if we have to set our preferences aside, then we need to do that. Because let me say this about the church, as we're going to cover this next month. We are not a club. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Jesus Christ. And the world must have us here. And the world needs us functioning, so we need to be unified. He goes on to say that he prayed for the church to honor him. Jesus goes on to pray for the church to honor him. Go back to verse 21 and the last part of that. Notice what he said again in verse 21. I just went over it quickly earlier, but he said, he said, he prayed that they also, that's us, may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, this is the thing about the churches that fuss, fight, and fragment, the churches that split. People see that, and they know the church isn't really focused on Christ. And people see that. They read the reports. And listen, the media loves to report about Christians fighting and fussing. As a matter of fact, all the denominations that exist in Christianity are simply because churches didn't agree, they fought, they fussed, and they split. And yes, that includes the Southern Baptist Convention. And people will see that from the outside. Unbelievers will see that and say, now why would I want to be a part of that? You know, I've got issues in my family, people not getting along. In my job at the office, at the factory, where I work on the construction site. Listen, people are fighting all the time. I get sick of it there. In school, we have fights and disagreements. I hate it there. Why would I want to go to another place where people fight, fuss, and don't get along? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to be like those people? Supposedly, Christ offers something better. Supposedly, the gospel offers something more unique. And it does. But when we don't live in it, we're not honoring the Lord. He said that they may be one in us. That's the first point. I want you to notice that he's talking about we need to focus on our union with the Godhead. Who is the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We need to be making sure that we are in union with them with God, with Him. We need to be walking with Him, honoring Him, serving Him, following Him. Our lives need to be in lockstep with Christ. I hear people, they, they rather call themselves, instead of Christian today, the title du jour is Christ follower or Jesus follower. That's fine if you want to call yourself that. I think sometimes that puts more emphasis on you than it does on Christ. But nonetheless, we are, as Christians, Christ followers, we need to actually do that if that's what we say we are. We need to make sure that we are following Him, going in the direction He wants to go, being what He wants us to be, loving what He wants us to love, pushing away what He wants us to push away. As the church, we are called the body of Christ. Can you imagine if your body decided it didn't want to function for you today? Some of you are saying, I'm already at that, Pastor. It's called old age. I'm already there. 
I wanted to get up this morning, but my body said, no, I don't think so. It's not fun, is it? My son, he broke his leg. That leg is not functioning the way he wants it to function. It's in the way. It's a pain. He can't drive. He can't do his job. He's a karate instructor. Can you imagine if your entire body did that? That's what happens when the church is not in unity with God. Yet we pray to God and expect Him to bless us and meet our needs and heal our family and take care of our our situation. And then we shove Him aside again. He says, I want you to be in union with with the Godhead and also in our unity with each other. That's how we honor Him in the world. Again, the world is looking at us. The unsaved world is trying to decide. They they, they want truth. They need truth. That's why they're going off in many directions. And they're looking at the church and they're evaluating the church. They're looking. Listen, people often think of the unsaved people as, I don't want anything to do with Christians of the church. You know, they may say that, but it's not real. They're broken. They're hurting. They're struggling. And they're looking for anything that will alleviate that and help them in that. And, And they're looking at the church. But what bothers them is the church isn't living up to what it's supposed to be. It's not in union and lockstep with the, with the will and word of God. So he prays for us to honor him by walking in union with him and also in our daily walk with each other as we are unified together. The third thing he prays for is he prays for the church to reflect God's love. He told his disciples, if you remember, that you are the light of the world. Now, Jesus is ultimately the light. John chapter 1 tells us that. But in Matthew, he said, you are the light of the world. We are to reflect God's light. We are to be reflectors. Look what it says in verse 23. He says, "In I in them, he's still talking about that connection, I in them and you in me, that they may be made complete, perfect. Here's that word again, in one. This is the fifth time he uses the word one. And that the world may know that you have sent me, and look at this, and have loved them as you loved me. In other words, we are to reflect God's love. They see how the Father loved Christ by how we love Christ and the Father. How the Spirit of God leads us to do both. First of all, in our completion. What does that mean when he says that they may be perfect? Well, it's no secret none of us are perfect in the way that you're thinking of it right now. Trust me, me either. I looked in the mirror this morning too, okay? I did not see a perfect looking person looking back at me. Matter of fact, I saw a mess of imperfection, so I can't even talk perfectly, that I knew a shower and a shave wouldn't fix altogether. None of us are perfect in that definition. The word perfect here means complete. It means being the person that God originally intended you to be. In other words, somebody who's first saved, that's part of it, and also serving, that's the other part of it. That is the most complete human being as humanly possible can dictate. You become complete when you know Christ and when you're walking with Him. And when we demonstrate that to people, we reflect God's love. Because not only does it show that God loves us, gives us salvation, something to do in service, but it also shows that we love Him and serve Him. That's completion. That's integration. Not only in our completion, but in our convictions. We need to demonstrate and prove that, yes, God loves us, not only by how we live as complete believers, but also in our convictions. He said that we might be one so that the world may know 
that you have sent me and have loved me, or loved them rather, as you have loved me. When we are convicted to honor and demonstrate Jesus Christ, we literally demonstrate the love of God. We become walking apologists for God. I tell people all the time, the greatest apologetic, what is an apologetic? It is a proof of the existence and truth of God through Christ. And I can tell you all kinds of different philosophical arguments, scientific arguments, logical arguments for the proof of God's existence. But one of the better proofs is you surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ in your daily walk. Now, again, that won't necessarily prove that there is a true and real God. But what it will prove is that God is true and real to you. It will show that God loved you and that you loved him. And in living a life of complete devotion and service, in living a life in, in, in that complete makeup, as we live, as we go, as we walk, as we share, we reflect the love of God. And as I said before, the world is looking desperately for the love of God. All the crime, all the stuff. You see this thing going on with the Taliban and, and Quranic Muslims causing so much terrorism and, and hurt. They believe they're serving God. They believe they're, they're, they're earning the love of God. They don't know that God has already demonstrated His love in Christ. And they need us to demonstrate that. So God in Christ prays that His church might reflect His love and our completion and our conviction as we walk with Him. He goes on to pray for the church to anticipate heaven. This is important because more often than not, we get so earthly minded that we become no heavenly good. I know you've heard that reversed. Some people will criticize somebody who is spiritual by saying, well, she's so heavenly minded, she's no earthly good. That is an idiotic statement. If you are heavenly minded, you're going to be earthly good. You're going to be good for the people around you. You're going to be good for society because you are going to bring the wonders of heaven to people. Look what he says as we look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me through salvation in Christ, I desire whom those whom you also gave me that they might be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3 that God has put eternity in our hearts. That's why we survive. That's why we want to survive. Because we were meant to live forever with God. We were meant to be in His presence, to have fellowship with Him, a relationship with Him. And through Jesus Christ, we will one day enjoy the splendors of His heavenly home. Oh my goodness. And it's going to be an amazing place. God, Jesus told the disciples again back in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, I'm creating mansions in heaven. Now, I know the Greek word is actually rooms, but I have a feeling the room in heaven is like anything better than a mansion on earth. And when you read the book of Revelation, you go to the last few chapters and you see a description of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. It's amazing. And God wants us to keep heaven on our minds. This isn't it. 
This is not the end of the road. This is not the end all and be all. I know when I talk to young people about the rapture and so forth, they don't want to hear about going to heaven because they haven't done any, everything they wanted to do on this earth and they haven't seen everything they wanted to see. And I can understand that from a young person. I can understand that. But what they don't understand, and you can't really make clear to them, is heaven is going to make this place look like an ash heap. And in heaven, there will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. In heaven, there will be no aging. In heaven, there will be no disappointment. In heaven, there will be no failure. In heaven, there will be no betrayal. In heaven, there will be no harm, no hurt, nor sickness, no death. This is not all there is. This is just the world. And at times, the world is difficult. I mean, look around you. Doesn't it cause you grief? Hurricane bearing down on Louisiana. Thousands upon thousands killed and hurt and homeless in Haiti. We don't understand, we cannot understand the, the, the extent of human suffering out there today and among our own brothers and sisters as well. Afghan in the Middle East being overrun by militant Quranic Muslims. Killing Women afraid because they're going to kill them. Christians afraid. I've read several things from pastors in, in, in Afghanistan, Christian pastors, who've basically said, pray that God strengthens me because they're coming to kill me. You and I, I don't care what you've been through, what you're going through, you and I don't even and can't even comprehend that level of suffering and struggle. That's why Wednesday night we talked about doing whatever this church can do, even sacrificially, to step out and help them. Because even at that kind of sacrifice, <laughs> we're still in good shape. You have suffering in China. Communist China. They're destroying church buildings. They're arresting and maybe even executing Christians. This is the world we live in, and it's not going to get better. Oh, there will be times of goodness, times, and God is still in the midst. But at the end of the day, it's heaven that we long for. Paul even said, I long to depart and be with Christ in Philippians 1. But he knew that to remain here is better for those so he could teach and help. But we need to remember the splendor of heaven. What it's going to be, and it's amazing, it's beyond human description, but also His glory. That's what's going to make heaven great. People talk about, oh, it'll be heaven if so-and-so is there. Oh, it'll be heaven if thus-and-so is there. Oh, it'll be heaven if they have that or do that. Listen, I'll tell you what's going to make heaven heaven. It's going to be the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is going to be heaven. So he prays for the church to anticipate heaven. Why? Because it helps us to get through this hellish world while we're here. Yes, we anticipate reuniting with those who have gone on. Yes, we long for a peaceful, splendid place to live, but we long to know Jesus completely. So he prays for the church and he prays for us and we must anticipate heaven with all its splendor to be in the midst of his glory. And then finally, he prays for the church to experience God's love. Oh, we talk about God's love. We sing about God's love. But I want to ask you specifically this morning in point blank, do you experience God's love? 
Do you experience God's love? Is that something that manifests itself in your life? Is that something that is characteristic in your life? Do you and I experience the amazing, awesome love of God? Let's look at this as we finish this up. He says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, oh, he says, oh, righteous father. Look at this first line in this passage. The world has not known you. The world hasn't known you. The world being all those who have stepped away, walked away, or looked away from God. See, the God's love is unknown to the world in reality. Oh, they hear about it. And amazingly, especially in the West, we celebrate Christmas. They come so close. But the world doesn't know God's love. Why is that? Well, number one, they reject God. But number two, we're not demonstrating it the way we should. He said, the world has not known you, but he, but he said, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that, listen to this, that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So the, the world doesn't know about the love of God. It is unknown the world. But listen, it's unlimited to the church of Jesus Christ. God's love is unlimited to you and I. It's like a treasure that we get a blank check for. There's nothing that you and I can do that can limit God's love for us. Oh, He might get upset with us. He might, he might discipline us. But God will never stop loving you. And it may seem like all those around you have rejected you. Look at Jesus. He was betrayed. When Jesus was bloody, beaten, and hanging on a cross, there was only one disciple and his mother and a few women there to weep over him. Jesus knows all about betrayal and abandonment. But even in the midst of that hour, God still loved him. The Father still loved him. Which emboldened Jesus to say from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then before he died, said, Into thy hands, into your hands, I commend my spirit. He knew that even though it seemed like God had forsaken him, at the end of the whole thing, he would bring him back home. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't understand that. And it amazes me how oftentimes we get away from that. We get bogged down, burdened down, broken down. And we don't feel like even God loves us. But that's because we're focused on us. And not on him, because Proverbs said he is at perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, he said, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you let him transform you by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove and demonstrate the wonderful love and grace of God. So he wants you and I to experience his love. Well, how do we do that? We do that by yielding to Him, by trusting in Him, by learning of Him, and no matter what goes on in our lives, by keeping focused on Him. So those are the prayers that Jesus prayed for the church. He prayed that the church might be united. He wants us to be one. He wants us to be together. He wants us to hang together no matter what. He prayed that the church might honor Him, that we would honor Him and give Him the glory, not us. 
Somebody came one time and said, oh, I don't like the music, I didn't like the preaching, I don't like the auditorium. Well, here's the thing, it's not for you. It's for God. We are to honor Him. We are to reflect God's love. That's what He wants us to do. We're to anticipate heaven. We're to live knowing this is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And he prays for us to experience personally his love. That's how Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for you and prayed for me. This is what he wants for us today. August 29th, 2021. West Concord Baptist Church. He prayed for us. That's why prayer is so important. If it was important enough for Jesus to pray, it's important for us to pray as well. James tells us in his book, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, he says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, listen to this, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He goes on to say, Elijah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, was a man with a nature like ours. That's that's a line not to skip. You say, oh, but Brother Mike, I'm just so-and-so. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not Amy Carmichael. I'm not you fill in the blank of whatever man or woman you hold in high esteem as a believer. You know what? All of these people I just named and more were just people. And Elijah, the great prophet and spiritual warrior, was just a guy like you and I. Just a human being. He had a nature like ours. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James chapter 5. Guy like us. Seeking God's face. So what are the lessons of the five things that we've looked at today and and the other messages we gave through this month? I leave you with this thought. You can take it or you can leave it. And I'll be honest with you, I think some people will just leave it. God help you. I hope not. I, I have better hope for you. But the fact of the matter is the effective, fervent prayers of the righteous avail much. You and I can do all kinds of amazing things at West Concord Baptist Church. Oh, but pastor, we're not a big church. Doesn't matter, we serve a big God. Oh, but pastor, we don't have much in the budget. We have the riches of heaven at our disposal. The problem is we never never go and get any of it. The effective, fervent prayers of the righteous avail much. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.